If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Tuesday, September the 17th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution. My guest today in our studio here in Hoover's Washington, D.C. office is Danny Heil. Danny is a Hoover Research Fellow, his focus being the federal budget, tax policy, and federal anti-poverty programs. He's also written extensively on the perils of telecommunication regulations and the economic effects of e-business. Danny Heil served as Governor Jeb Bush's economic policy advisor during the 2016 presidential campaign, counseling him on the federal budget, tax policy, and the federal anti-poverty programs. Danny received a Master's of Public Policy degree with a specialization in economics and American politics from Pepperdine University, which tells you that his heart is in Los Angeles and he's wearing a blue shirt today you bleed blue don't you you're a dodger indeed fan. indeed so danny and i have baseball in common in case you haven't noticed we have a little baseball sitting here between us uh but we're on different ends of the baseball spectrum i am a washingtonian by birth which makes me a baltimore orioles fan by ad- adoption which means that i suffer and right now danny i sadly look at the standings and i look for one thing is there any way the orioles could get to 53 wins and <laughs> avoid 110 losses you my friend sit up in the penthouse i'm wondering if the dodgers can double that High atop Mount Olympus, and the Dodgers uh, looking every bit like a World Series team again. Let me ask you a question, though. If the Dodgers are Greek mythology, are they Sisyphus or Tantalus? <laughs> are they forever pushing a boulder up the hill, or are they just that close to getting uh, a drink? Playoffs are a crapshoot. One of these years will be ours. 31 years right now, right? 31, yeah, but still shorter than the Giants' drought prior to 2010. Where were you in 1988? Uh, three years old, probably fast asleep when Kurt Gibson hit the home run. <laughs> So you literally don't remember this. I do not. Seen the highlights many times, though. So what are you Can quote t- Vince Scully. So if they do it this year, what are you going to tell your children? Because they, you have, what, two children now? Uh, just wait for next year, too. We're going to go back-to-back, I'm sure. But I'm only one child, though. Okay. Well, you're not going to do the crazy classic like Red Sox thing, where when the Red Sox finally won a World Series in 2004, you had infants being grabbed out of their cradles <laughs> at 1 in the morning and to look at the TV to say that Well, he'll be, he'll be watching the whole game, unquestionably. All right. Is he speaking already? Uh, a couple words here or there. Kershaw. <laughs> uh, go Dodgers is certainly one of the ones on the list of words he needs to say soon. I have a uh, grandnephew, Danny, who lives in South Carolina, and his uh, father went to Clemson, and so the kid just wears orange all the time and all he knows is Clemson football. And honest to goodness, his third word after mom and dad was paw, <laughs> Clemson Tigers. So let's talk about something that you do at Hoover, and that is a project, and it's called America Off Balance, which you can actually find on the web, americaoffbalance.org. Danny Heil, what is America Off Balance? So America Off Balance is our effort to talk about the federal budget in a new way. Uh, you know, I think when we go out and talk to the public about issues related to the federal budget, most people have some understanding that the budget's in trouble. And they might not know the particular numbers, but they know something's wrong with it. They know deficits are large. They know debt is growing rather quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but what we've discovered when you talk to people, they don't really have a good sense of what the solutions are or what the list of possible solutions are. So what America Off Balance is, it's really an effort to kind of walk through different solutions to the federal budget issues. How can we restrain the debt? And in part, this is a reaction to people saying that you can solve the budget problems by cutting defense or cutting foreign aid or reducing waste, fraud, and abuse. And so what we do is we just show them the budget math, uh, show them the, the available set of options that can actually move the needle. And unfortunately, it's the options that nobody really likes. It's entitlement reform, it's tax reform. And so what we're trying to do is give people an opportunity to really dig deeper into these solutions as opposed to just focusing on how bad things are. So one question with the, uh, with the federal budget, Danny, is how large is the federal budget? And let's pause here for a second in the podcast. Let the, let the listeners guess how large is the budget. Five, four, three, two, one. What is the current size of the federal budget? Current size of the federal budget is about four point five trillion in fiscal year two thousand nineteen. And how do you put that into terms that people can understand? Oh. In terms of the obligatory stack of bills to the moon or something. Yeah, like really, that. really difficult, right? The way we typically measure it is just as a share of GDP. We say that you know it's about twenty percent of the economy is spent by the federal government. Um, but as as far as the individual liabilities and things like that, we can talk about it in terms of you know each taxpayer what they owe on the federal debt or what they owe on the federal budget. And so right now, something about uh, uh, each American citizen owes about fifty thousand dollars for the federal debt. If we just take the total federal debt, divide by the number of people, that's where we're at right now. 
And how do you put growth in the budget in context for people to understand? What time frame do you go? Do you go back five years, ten years? Do you go back to Kennedy, FDR, Lincoln? So really, we're focused on the we're we're focused on the future. So we begin today. We show people what the numbers look like today, and then we stretch it out over the next thirty years. Uh, and we can dig back and go into the historical budget, but the reality is that. Uh, we, we have certain programs, entitlements, mainly Social Security and Medicare, that are growing from this point forward, and they're growing much faster than the rest of the budget. And so our idea is to really kind of put that into perspective of how much of the, the future federal budget is being spent on just those two programs, and it works out to be, you know, 60% of non-interest spending going to those two programs going forward. So when you go on the website, Danny, you immediately hit three options. One is tour the budget, the second one is budget <coughs> matters, the third one is fix the budget. Let's hold off on the third one for a while. So that's a little more complicated. <laughs> Just a bit. Uh, tour the budget. What am I looking at when I tour the budget? Yep, so uh, tour the budget is really about actually going through the set of policy options, and we kind of pick the big ones. So we begin with tax policy. We let you uh, see what kind of uh, in tax increases are necessary just to keep debt below 100% of GDP. So right now, budget projections are that by 2033, the federal debt's going to exceed 100% of GDP. And by 2049, it's going to reach about 140% of GDP. And so what kind of tax increases would you need to enact immediately in order to keep the debt from growing above 100% of GDP? Um, so with our tax increase one, we start with just a broad-based tax increase on everyone. So take every dollar that you give to the federal government, how much are we going to have to increase it by this year and next year and every year after mm -hmm. just to keep debt from growing above 100%. And it works out to be right now about an 8% increase in your taxes immediately. So every year, take what you were going to pay in taxes, just increase that by 8%, and then we can keep debt below 100% of GDP. And then we move to spending. And with spending, we do the same exercise. We're initially, what if we cut spending across the board? Uh, what would you have to cut spending by? And it works out to be about 7%, which might not seem like that much, That you know, just a broad-based cut of every program, cut it by 7%. Whatever it's going to grow by, reduce that by 7% for every year. Uh, but when you actually start digging into it, you know, that means pay cuts to, for federal workers, Social Security cuts, cuts to our Defense Department, across the board. And so then we kind of let you dig in, and we let you do particular options. So for taxes, you can see how much we'd have to raise taxes on just the wealthy by, or just, you know, top 20% of taxpayers. And of course, the numbers start ballooning pretty quickly, and you've discovered it's really hard to balance the budget or keep the debt below 100% of GDP just by raising taxes on high-income earners. So there, so there is no easy fix. There's no easy fix, and that's really the point throughout all of this. And I don't mean that politically an easy fix, but just a practical... Just there's, do this and it's solved. there's no one fix, and that's one thing that we really want to encourage. And so when we get to spending, we look through these particular options. We let you decide how much you want to cut foreign aid by. And it turns out, you know, you could eliminate foreign aid. It doesn't make a doesn't move the needle at all. Which foreign aid is in the budget. Uh, not much. You're talking, uh, you know, depending on how you classify it, you know, five ten billion. But uh, you know, there's there's just not that much there relative to a four point five trillion dollar budget. Right. Um, so, uh, and then we let you, you know, cut the EPA, cut all these small little programs where you get some people thinking that this is where the budget really is spent. And then we let you cut defense and show you what kind of defense cuts you would need to make in order to just keep debt below 100% of GDP if you just focus on defense. There's this uh, misconception that defense represents half the federal budget. And what people uh, fail to understand is that defense is discretionary spending. This is what Congress has to uh, authorize every year. Um, and there's a whole chunk of the budget that isn't subject to annual appropriations. We call it mandatory spending. These are where our entitlement programs come from. Um, and when you when you talk to people, especially on the left, who want to cut defense, and you say, well, how much of the budget is defense spending? They say, oh, 50%. And so they come in assuming that they can really make these uh, cuts and they can solve this problem just by reducing defense spending. And the reality is you'd have to immediately cut defense spending by over 50% uh, every year going forward just to keep debt below 100% of GDP. This would be a good time to explain exactly what is in a $4.5 trillion with a <laughs> trillion yeah. dollar budget. So let's think of this first of all as a pie chart. So give me the percentages in that $4.5 trillion. Certainly. So Social Security and Medicare account for just about half right now. Okay. Um, and then we throw in Medicaid, which is another... Uh, 10% or so, um, and then the rest of the budget, uh, the rest of the what we call mandatory spending, that's the part not subject to annual appropriations by Congress, um, that accounts for another 10% uh, or so. And the rest is split pretty evenly between, between non-defense discretionary spending, that's what funds all of our government agencies, Department of Justice, the EPA, uh, State Department, all of those, and then the other half goes to defense spending. So okay. I'm hoping I got to 100% there. I might have gone over a little bit, but those are about the, the rough And percentages. one percentage of that is untouchable. 
So, well, no part's untouchable. But in, terms of, in terms of what's locked in. So, uh, so uh, the about two-thirds of it goes to mandatory spending. That's mm-hmm. the part that is not subject to annual appropriations by Congress. But, you know, I think that's a, it's a misconception to say untouchable. It's, yes. uh, these are parts that not only require Congress to make changes occasionally, but in the case of, say, Social Security and Medicare, there are trust funds that when the trust funds go to zero, at that point, Congress has to act. Otherwise, there's manda- there's actual cuts, you know, baked into these the legislation. So, um, I you know I think what we've discovered is Congress really kind of likes that logic that these are untouchable. We don't need to think about them. Um, but if we're going to solve the budget problem, we have to look at those programs. Okay, so let's talk about the programs. Then let's talk about healthcare. Let's talk about social security. Let's talk about taxes. Let's talk about defense. First of all, Danny, what do we do in healthcare? Uh, for for healthcare, you know, obviously uh, the, the the you're you're dealing with a really challenging issue. You have uh, people, low income people Medicare, who, Medicaid, right? uh, yeah. And so, uh, you know, I think one thing you do is you, you first of all realize that most of the cost growth going forward is in Medicare. Right. Uh, this is for senior citizens. Uh, right now, you're looking at um, you know it's it's accounts for 20 percent or so of the budget. Within the next 30 years, it's going to account for you know a third. Uh, this is a huge increase in spending. In fact, even if you compare Medicare to Social Security, what you discover very quickly is Social Security, the problems are half from growth in benefits, half from growth in uh, just enrollment, just baby boomers retiring. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you turn to Medicare, you know, it's the growth over the next 30 years in Medicare from enrollment is about, uh, say, about 50%. So the enrollment's going to rise by about 50% over the next 30 years. Benefit levels are projected to rise by 150% over the next, and that's adjusted for inflation. Um, so these are massive increases in, in spending per enrollee. So the reality is for Medicare, the set of available options aren't good. Uh, the, the options are you, you, you pass it on to seniors or you raise taxes to finance the program, and neither of those are you know, really politically popular. Uh, there are options. Uh, the, the biggest one on the right that we often talk about is uh, premium support, and that's essentially shifting Medicare from a open-ended, we'll just pay for 80% on Part B of 80% of your medical costs going forward to instead, uh, we're going to give you a subsidy to go out and purchase a private health insurance plan. And that might see, seem extreme to some people who are on traditional Medicare, but if you're on Medicare Part C, that's what we uh, it's otherwise known as Medicare Advantage. Right. That's what we have now with Medicare Advantage, essentially. You know, the system has problems, but that's the the best option going forward if we're actually going to contain costs. But make no mistake, that's that's passing on some costs to seniors, um, and that's politically very you know challenging for anyone who's you know wanting to see real change in this program. Right. So we've now immediately be embarked on fixing the budget by doing it on the backs of the senior and the and the poor. And there we go. There we go. And and I would say you know you can absolutely structure these these changes in ways that avoid hurting the poor. And in fact, I think a lot of the things when we talk about why we should be concerned about the future the future of the federal budget, it's that you know, the danger is that we would end up balancing this on the backs of the poor, that Medicare is too politically hard to do, Social Security is too politically hard to do. And even though those are the two programs that definitely benefit wealthier seniors more than others, those are the programs that become untouchable. And you know, you're certainly, uh, you know California well, and you can go back to 2009 and look what they did when they were in a recession, and they didn't touch pensions much. They touched low-income programs, education, infrastructure, all of those things that every citizen really should be concerned about. Uh, and the danger is if we go too far down this road, that's where we're going to be making cuts to the federal budget in the future. It's going to be these low-income programs. It will be infrastructure. It will be defense. It will be all those other parts. And Social Security and Medicare will be left growing. And I'm glad you mentioned California because the pension obligation is a monster just sitting over the horizon, which no politician wants to go near. near. Yep, exactly. There's definitely an analog. All right. uh, Walk me through Social Security. So Social Security is much easier than Medicare. Social Security, the the way that we reform policy-wise, it's a pretty straightforward fix. Um, if you're familiar with the way Social Security works, the benefit formula grows at wages, average wages in the economy. And what, mean, what that means is over time, benefits don't rise at prices. Benefits will actually rise faster than prices. So each subsequent generation of retiree is getting a larger real benefit. Adjusted for inflation, they're getting more. And so the way we fix that is just by changing it from a wage indexing system to a price indexing system. And the great thing about that fix is that we're not cutting anyone's benefits. No one's losing their Social Security revenue. In fact, a current recipient on Social Security 
would not even notice the difference. There'd be no change to them whatsoever. The only difference we're changing is we're going from a system where uh, we're promising these unrealistic future benefits and we're changing it to realistic future benefits that are no lower than today's levels. So it's a, it's a much easier policy fix. Now, convincing a politician to actually go forward and reforming, that's a whole other issue that the... Uh, the AARP, the left, you'll have these, you know, significant outrage of, oh my goodness, they're going to cut your benefits. And I would challenge policymakers who are concerned about this program, you know, to realize that if you got it passed, if you actually pushed this through, um, you know, at that point, it would be very clear to senior citizens that, oh no, my benefits weren't affected by right. this, that they were, I was being lied to when, it, when the, I was told that the only reform to this program that Republicans won or something that would take benefits away from me. Let me throw a few political buzzwords at you, opting out, privatization. So uh, for, for Social Security, you know, I think, you know, when it comes to privatization, that ship has probably sailed, at least in the near term. Uh, if, when we talked about privatization in the late 90s, you ended up uh, with, you had massive surpluses, Social Security surpluses. Right. The payroll tax coming, the payroll tax revenue coming in was much larger than the benefits going out. And so there was an opportunity then to do something like that. But now we're in a situation where, Every year, benefits are in excess of payroll taxes coming in. The trust fund, the, the, whatever we believe about the trucks fund, it's actually becoming it's shrinking now because right. we're having to take from the rest of government to fund Social Security benefits. And so when, you know, back in the 90s, great idea. We'd love for it to happen now. But the reality is the budget math just isn't there. That yeah, what did Bush 43 White House, what did they, what did they try to go after? Because this is part yep. of his second term. What, right, so after yeah. he reelected, they yeah. put forward a Social Security reform. And they included some privatization elements in there. You take a small share of the your contributions to payroll tax and be right. allow you to invest in private accounts. So partial um, privatization. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It. But the hard part is is funding existing retirees' benefits. Mm -hmm. The Social Security is a pay-as-you-go system, which means you got to find money somewhere to pay for that Social Security recipient who needs their check. Right. And and the only way to do that is through either taking it from the rest of the general fund and just taxing, you know, increasing income taxes to pay for this, or it's to realize that that payroll tax revenue is going to go to Social Security recipients. And to opt out of the system now would be really challenging. Where did the Jeb Bush campaign land on Social Security, out of curiosity? Were they similar to the brother, or did you have something different? So uh, for, for Social Security reform, we avoided words like privatization and things like that because, again, the, the budget math is pretty clear at this point. It's really hard to go down that road. Mm -hmm. But they did propose, we, we proposed some... Uh, price indexing of benefits, particularly for higher income individuals. Uh, you know, right now you have a system where the biggest benefits go to people on the high income level. And so there were ways to make the system more progressive by slowing the rate of benefit growth among high income folks. Um, you know, we uh, certainly Social Security is an issue where any politician is leery to go after. Um, and, you know, the, the type of reforms that were on the table on any of the candidates that were pitching for, that were talking about Social Security reform, they were pretty limited, uh, and rightfully so, because politically that's not a winner, particularly when you had people on the stage like our current president or Mike Huckabee telling us, or even John Kasich, who was saying that Social Security wasn't a problem, that people had paid into the system, and right. there's plenty of money there, and the trust fund's fully funded. Um, so it's a really hard argument to make when you're a serious candidate wanting to actually push back and say, no, that you know these programs are in trouble, and if we want to make sure these programs survive for the long haul and pro continue to provide support to low-income senior citizens, you need to reform them. Okay, now take us through taxes, which is both raising taxes but also keeping taxes tax cuts permanent. Yeah, so I, I think when you when you look at uh, the TCGA, which is the recent tax cut, and two years ago, great things in it. Corporate TCGA standing the, the, for uh, Tax Cuts and Job Act, okay. um, and so this was the 2017 Tax Act. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, we, we welcome lower corporate tax rates. I think that's something that is important to grow the economy. Right. Um, the, the, the personal income side of things, I think you can look a lot of what was there and, and chalk it up to po politics, not actual policy. This wasn't designed to grow the economy. This was designed to make sure families with children were happy about the tax plan. Uh, and as a, as a dad, uh, after the tax cut was passed, I'm quite happy with that part of the tax plan. Uh, but it wasn't there for growth. Um, and if we want a tax system that is equitable but also designed to grow the economy, a lot of the, the personal provisions of the tax cuts, you know, you, you could have some problems with, and particularly when we know what debt levels are going forward. And I think the, the reality is, is if we know what the federal budget looks like, if we hop on America off balance and you can see what the, the numbers look like, uh, very quickly you realize that unless we're able to exercise significant spending restraint, we're going to increase taxes at some point. Mm -hmm. And I, a great example of this is the, the Democrats, their uh, Social Security 2100 Act, uh, which is something that the Congressional Budget Office just scored 
210 Democratic co-signers on it now. And uh, Social Security 2100, the big parts in there that people want to talk about are benefit and increases to low-income people, and, uh, we're sure, and we're going to increase taxes on the wealthy. They're going to start paying payroll taxes above $400,000. But what's buried in this is actually a tax increase on all Americans, that they're bumping, they are proposing to bump up the payroll tax from uh, the Social Security payroll tax from about 12.4% to 14.8% over the next 20 years. So they're proposing a 20% or 15% increase in the Social Security tax in order to fund the program. And so what we see is Democrats are already kind of laying the groundwork for raising taxes to fund the social system that Americans love. Right. Um, and so when it comes to the TCGA or other tax cut or other tax legislation, we need to be very careful about pushing for permanent extensions of these when we know that others want to increase taxes in other ways. And eventually, one way or the other, you're going to need benefit cuts or tax increases. Have you uh, studied the Democratic candidates' various tax proposals? Or at least, because rhetorically, they all want to undo the Trump tax cuts. You, at least I assume yes. they all do. I don't know. I, I guess Biden does. I know certainly Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders. Doesn't I, I think, yeah, you know, they, they haven't fully flushed out what that means. Right. You know, would you actually increase taxes? Would you get rid of the refundable child tax credit, you know, extension of $1,000? Would you keep that part of it? That very quickly, just like Obama in 2012. So that's my question, Danny. Yeah. Let's, let's put you into an alternate universe where, let's say, Elizabeth Warren's elected president. Yeah. And let's put her in a universe where Democrats win both the House and the Senate. Now it's the Democrats' games, the Democrats' rules. So I imagine they're going to lickety-split, want to undo the Trump cast cuts. But this is kind of robbing Peter to pay for Paul, it strikes for me. So where do you think the Democrats would take the money if they got the money back from the tax cuts? Yeah, yeah new programs. New programs. I, I think that's very clear that like when, when pre-K, you... Pre-K, uh, things pre-K, like that. Pre-K, student yeah. loan, Medicare for All, Green New Deal... You know, so the list than, goes on and on. Rather than pay down your visa, instead it's just going to go into more spending. Precisely. And okay. I think, you know, just look at, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren came out with her Social Security plan over the weekend, mm-hmm. uh, and it or last week, and it included a, you know, massive tax increase on high-income individuals. But that tax that tax increase wasn't going to pay for the existing Social Security benefits or anything like that. It was going to fund new, new benefits. Um, and, I, you know, when you go through the list of new taxes that are being proposed, it's always attached with some new entitlement, some new program promising free mm-hmm. things to a whole swath of people who wouldn't be paying that tax. Right. So I noticed she had a problem for the, with this in the last debate when she was asked to Biden put her on the spot about Medicare for all. Biden does not want to do Medicare for all. He wants to do a variation of it. He doesn't yeah. want to go all the way in where she's all the way in like with Bernie. But when she's asked how she's going to pay for it. It gets into kind of humming a humming a time, if you will. And let's get to that. I want to talk about that in a minute. But uh, let's round out the uh, budget discussion with uh, defense. So you know, defense spending, uh, back in 2011, we had the Budget Control Act, which mm-hmm. is the sequester, um, right. and it, it created the sequester. And in percentage of the budget that is defense right now? Uh, about 15%. 15. 15, 1.5, yeah. And most people probably say, what, half? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and that's certainly true, right? Because they're stuck to just looking at that discretionary component. So about one in six and a half to seven dollars goes to the budget. That's right, okay. that's right. Defense budget, okay. That's right. And so are you back in 2011, the, the Budget Control Act was sort of a haphazard way to control spending and what the intention was that we would uh, start with fairly moderate cuts to discretionary spending including defense Mm -hmm. and then we would enact larger changes to entitlement spending that would really kind of change the 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 future budget trajectory and very quickly that process broke down and there was sort of this uh, switch in the budget control act that said well if you can't get a deal passed we're just going to take an axe to discretionary spending, half defense, half non-defense. And that's what happened. We discovered that it's really hard to reform entitlement programs, couldn't reach an agreement, and all of a sudden we just took an axe to both sides of the discretionary accounts. And what we saw over the last five, ten years is a, a concerning sort of flatlining of defense spending. And, you know, no defense expert here, and I think if you talk to any defense hawk, you know, they would say any level of defense spending is too low. Um, and, right. Uh, but if you look at how in real dollars defense spending actually fell over the last 10 years, um, so that's that's something where if you're concerned about the federal budget and if you are wanting to see higher defense spending, you should be really focused on reforming entitlement programs. Right. And when so we, when a candidate yeah. says, you know, I want to go in, a Democrat candidate goes in and says, I want to cut defense spending, 
uh, you call BS. Not because of defense spending per se, but just it's not really getting at the heart of the problem. Correct. Absolutely. Now, at the same time, I think you know we had the recent budget deal uh, where we added $320 billion in spending over the next two years. Okay, and let's talk yep. about that for a second. Sure. So th added $320 billion, and we also pushed the spending cap down the road to 2021, right? Well, the, the spending cap's gone after 2021. Okay. And so just, uh, they, 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 we're done with the Budget Control Act at this point, effectively. And so what that meant is that $320 Twenty billion dollars using the the fund right. con congressional math, three hundred twenty billion dollars over the next two years turned into one point five trillion dollars in increased spending over the next ten years. Uh, because how does, how does that so how did that happen? Um, the the way Cong the way Congress's budget office, the Congressional Budget Office, scores legislation or scores the discretionary baseline, how they predict baseline spending to be rising over time, right. is they take this year's spending and they increase it by inflation for the next year, and then they do that for the next ten years, and they call that the discretionary baseline spending. And so, in the case of the Budget Act, because the the final year of the Budget Act or the the budget deal that just got passed was the last year of the budget caps, the last year that the Budget Control Act was under effect, it meant that the year after that, the baseline spending is a function of this now elevated new spending levels. And so, if you actually pull up the August Congressional Budget Office baseline discretionary spending, you'll find that it's 1.5 trillion dollars higher over the next 10 years than their June est or their May estimates. Um, and so this was, you know, a, a, a we, everyone knew at the time that this is what it was, but we kind of talked about this as, oh, it's, you know, $320 billion in increased defense and non-defense spending. But no, it was much more than that. And the troubling part about that budget deal wasn't so much the increase in spending. That was sort of predicted. Uh, you know, everyone, we had uh, several what they call bipartisan budget acts that have been passed over the last seven years that did the same thing. They lifted the caps because everyone said, oh, it's just, you know, we're not spending enough money on uh, discretionary programs. But what this bill, the the rhetoric behind it was scary, was that people would actually come out and say, well, we know discretionary spending is not the problem. It is entitlement programs. And so we're not going to bother containing discretionary spending because we know that's not where the money's at. And the, the, the analogy I used was sort of like saying, well, you know, I'm going to go out and buy that really nice sports car because my mortgage bill is so large. And that's what's driving my future, you know, debt increases. And so I can spend as much money elsewhere. Um, and the, but this is the kind of logic that Democrats and Republicans were both using to justify a massive increase in federal spending. And we're in, right. the logic is obviously opposite, right? If you're spending a lot of money in one pool, and we know that pool is going to be expanding dramatically, we need to be even more careful about where we're spending money elsewhere in the budget. So the first thing I noticed, Danny, is when you put the uh, year 2021 on something, you now pushed it past the 2020 uh, election. Yep, yep. But the second thing that struck me as interesting about that vote is if you look at where the House Republicans came down on it, about a two-to-one split. About one-third of the Republican caucus actually voted for the deal. Yep, yeah. And part of that was political realities. Uh, you know, that one, they definitely wanted to see defense spending increase. As I said, you know, there's been, if you go to 2011 and compare it to today, defense spending in real dollars wasn't that much higher. Um, and so if you're a defense hawk, you're definitely concerned about that. You also had the White House definitely pushing for it. Uh, they wanted to get this bill passed for political reasons. They wanted to avoid the, uh, they were able to include uh, extending the debt ceiling a couple years, which or suspending the debt ceiling, uh, which definitely is something they wanted to do to avoid getting down to, you know, having to make a political trade-off right at the right. eve of it. Uh, they wanted to avoid a government shutdown with uh, not getting a bill passed on October 1. So there were a host of good political reasons to pass it. But if you're concerned about the long-term directory of the federal budget, you should be li very leery about adding $1.5 trillion to the next 10 years of spending. You talk to members of Congress. You're familiar with going on up there. What is anybody playing the role dotage? Is anybody walking around with a light looking for a good man? Is there? <laughs> I mean, we can talk about Paul Ryan being out of Congress yeah, right now. Yeah. Here is somebody who really made it his effort to look at the budget and these serious matters. But who on Capitol Hill, Danny, is looking at so, who you really know, who really wants to pay attention to this? There are a handful. You know, uh, Justin Amash, certainly. Uh, he's, you know, obviously sort of on the political outs with nearly everyone. But right. um, he's concerned about it. You know, I think when you, when you jump over to the Senate, you find a few more folks who are still concerned about it. But I think... It's amazing how quickly the, the future debt becomes sort of a cudgel, that if, if you're proposing programs that I don't like, I'm really concerned about the debt. If you're proposing programs that I do like, well, you know, these are good programs and we can afford it. Um, and, and that's what we've discovered, you know, pretty much across the board. There's always some program that a congressman is going to be willing to push for, even if it's adding to the debt. Right. Now, you work with John Kogan on these matters, right? Yep. And uh, for those who are not familiar with John Kogan, he is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and he worked in the Office of Management and Budget for Ronald Reagan. Um, John must be horrified by this situation. <laughs> it's job security for him, certainly. He always has something to talk about. 
Uh, yeah, John, you just uh, released a book this past year, uh, right. The High Cost of Good Intentions, which really kind of dives into the history of entitlement programs and looks at how every entitlement program sort of follows a similar trajectory. It begins small, it begins narrowly targeted at a particular audience, but it quickly devolves into something much larger and something that the, the original architects never intended it to be. Mm -hmm. And so uh, John's book is a powerful lesson today as we're talking about Green New Deal, entitlement right. policies, you know, Social Security expansions, Medicare for All, uh, how quickly these programs go out of control and really encompass things that even, you know, today's creators of the programs wouldn't have expected, you know, 20, 30 years from now. Have you had a chance to sit down and talk to Rob Portman about these matters? Have not. But uh, Portman is one of the, the few who have, you know, voiced some pretty strong objections to, right. you know, our spending levels. And, um, yeah, certainly, you know, on the side of doing something about the federal budget. But, uh, right. you know, there's a, a few and far people in this city don't get the problem. And this is one thing where I think, you know, people, the, the U.S. doesn't appreciate so much how much policymakers understand that the federal budget is in trouble, mm -hmm. but they see the political realities. They realize that it's very hard to do anything about it without losing the next election, or they think that at least. Um, and so whenever we can find an ally in D.C. who's really concerned about this and willing to take a political risk, uh, it's definitely worthwhile to engage them. Danny, do you think the problem in terms of uh, explaining this to the American people um, is, first of all, we're dealing with dollar amounts that most people can't fathom. Secondly, it's not like it's personally impacted them yep. yet. Yep. But then thirdly, most Americans live with debt. They yep. either live with mortgages, they live with large credit card debts. They're familiar with being a hawk. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think it, it's certainly true motivating this issue is challenging. Uh, it's become more and more challenging over the years, I feel like. You know, you particularly when interest rates are low and things like that, people make, you know, terrible arguments about, oh, we can spend as much money today because it doesn't cost us anything, right. which is nonsense, of course. But, um, you know, I, I think when we, when we go to the public, one thing we find is is talking about the next generation, the impact on the next generation. The Americans, you know, deeply concerned for future generations, right? There's this concern that, you know, my child's not going to have the future that I had. Um, and we need to speak about it in that terms. It can't just be, you know, current day, this is going to be producing huge issues. No, we need to look forward and say this is going to produce, this is going to destabilize the country. This will destabilize the economy. This will destabilize the federal budget process. When you have debt over 100% of GDP, small changes in interest rate mean massive changes in how the federal budget looks year to year. Um, and so what we, we try to bring the focus of America off balance back to future generations, talk about here are the reforms that future generations would have to enact if the debt becomes unmanageable. And it become, it's such a larger problem the, the longer you wait. Uh, where if we enacted common sense reforms now to Social Security and Medicare, politically challenging, no doubt about it, but so much easier and so far less draconian than the type of policies that would be needed 15, 20 years from now. And I think we can take a lesson from the way climate change activists talk about this issue. This is something that they've always sort of focused on. There's a moral dimension here mm -hmm. that we're affecting the next generation. We're taking the right. vote out of the next generation's hand and we're saying, no, we're going to spend the money today. We're going to spend today. And so, you know, we need to talk about in that same sort of logic that this is a, a, a threat to the future prosperity and security of the next generation. So that's a great segue to get into the Green New Deal. Um, it's easy to mock the Green New Deal. Donald Trump is going to spend a lot of time next year making fun of cow methane and so forth. Uh, our Hoover colleague Michael Boskin has a very clever way of looking at the Green New Deal. It's not surprising. And Dr. Boskin's a very bright uh, economist. Uh, what he talks about is, okay, if you do the Green New Deal, let's just do the math on how you would convert every building in America to solar. And you have to do like 4,000 buildings a day. It's just not feasible. Um, let's take it from another angle, though, and that's just the pure dollars involved here. Yeah. So, you know, the uh, American Action Forum has done a score on it, and it's, you know, several trillions of dollars. Uh, I forget the exact number, but far more than the country could ever afford. Um, and I think if we take a step back and we say, if you're concerned about climate change, uh, you know, th there is a there is something that would offer far more bipartisan support than this deeply... Uh, you know, uh, bureaucratic, you know, let's regulate everything uh, approach that the Green New Deal takes. Mm -hmm. And that's a, a carbon tax. You know, this is something that, that uh, you know, certainly Dr. Boskin talks about, where, you know, there's this uh, option to give the private sector an incentive to consider the cost of their right. carbon emissions. So George Schultz's approach. Uh, George Schultz's right. approach, certainly. And, and uh, um, you know, when we, when we actually think about 
you know, what that could mean for the federal budget. You know, the, the carbon tax could be a way to finance or to pay off a portion of the debt. Um, that ugly word tax attached it, to it. It, it does. It absolutely does. And this is part of the problem with, you know, making good public policy in the U.S. in, in 2019. Can, we, you, can you find a better we, <laughs> synonym to tax? <laughs> so, uh, well, Share, and, you know, shared a, responsibility. a carbon rebate or something like that, perhaps. <laughs> We're rebating the, the revenue from it. Um, but, well, I don't but, mean to make like yeah. these are very serious problems, but just this is yeah. just the political but, problem when you put tax on it. Flip out. Certainly, and and I think you know this is this we can see this problem across a lot of American public policy. Yes. I think if we go back to the Affordable Care Act, you see this desperate attempt to avoid taxing people more, this desperate attempt to avoid spending, and instead what we do is we regulate the problem. We try to regulate who can buy insurance and say, okay, well, you know, we can't charge higher prices. So we ruin the price mechanism because we're avoid to just use the T word. Mm -hmm. um, and if back in 2011. I would have disagreed with it, but if back in 2011 or 2010, Democrats in Congress would have said, let's tax people to pay for, uh, you know, sick people's health insurance, right. I think that would have been a much better outcome than what we have now, which is a, you know, a disordered health insurance market largely created by the Affordable Care Act's regular regulations. And so I think the Green New Deal is that same type of thing. Let's find ways to regulate it. Let's find ways to not put costs up front, but instead tell people that you can get that free lunch. And if you're concerned about climate change, you should be really concerned about these type of silly policies that are promising these free lunch. It's a lot harder to convince someone to, you know, buy that food that I'm selling you when right around the corner there's that free lunch being offered to you. And that's the Green New Deal. It's making it harder to actually move the needle forward on, on getting a policy that would actually change, uh, uh, you know, future emissions. Now let's talk a little Medicare for all. Again, something very easy to demonize. You can <laughs> throw out the word socialized medicine. You can point people north to Canada and show awful weights for care and so forth. But let's talk about just the fiscal impact. So fiscal impact, uh, Chuck Blauhaus of uh, Mercatus, um, he has done an estimate that would be $32 trillion increase to the, I think it was $32 trillion. So seven, uh, seven times the current budget. Uh, well, $32 trillion over 10 years. Oh, okay. uh, so over 10 years, more. yes, okay. yes. So $32 trillion over 10 years would be the increase in government spending from Medicare for All. And that was actually a pretty, uh, it was a, a generous reading of current Medicare for All legislation. How do you um, come up with that kind of number, $32 trillion? Well, it's actually pretty easy. Medicare for All is fairly easy to score because what you can do is you can just say well how much are we projecting healthcare spending let's transfer over to the feds and then make some assumptions about uh, with with the Medicare for all uh, typically these scores assume that reimbursement rates for doctors would fall uh, mm -hmm. because they'd be able to get these really they'd be able to use Medicare reimbursement rates mm -hmm. uh, Blahouse incorporated that argument and then said well it's pretty unlikely that doctors are going to be willing to accept the the kind of reduction in payments and then they say we'll save some money on administrative costs too but otherwise it's just what are we spending today and then you have to add a little bit more in for people who don't have health insurance who would now increase their health care ex expenditures but um, yeah it's it's a pretty easy. It's arithmetic is really what it, it well, you is. Well, could say it's not going to cost $32 trillion because guess what? You have to wait so long for your health care. <laughs> you're not going to get that treatment and you'll yeah. die. And that's the question is is ultimately, you know, we, we begin with this idea that, you know, you can just give everyone health care right. and you can get more. Uh, but ultimately, at some point, policymakers will have to decide between restricting access, wait lines and things like that, or drastically increasing spending as doctors refuse to accept patients in this new system. Right. Um, and so the, the costs that have been suggested, which are still astronomical, $32 trillion, and, and the, the argument for that $32 trillion is, well, you know, we're already paying that in the form of health insurance premiums, and so now we'd just be paying it to the federal government instead. And so it's not that much. Um, but, you know, we know that over the, a very short time, these programs would run out of control. They would either, uh, doctors would just flee the program, which means that you'd have to increase reimbursement rates to keep doctors in it. Um, or, you know, you'd have incredibly restrictive access to, to, to medicine. And we know one thing, the American public wouldn't accept that. And so you'd be talking about massive cost overruns very quickly that would dwarf current spending on the federal budget or even on health care. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and finally, permanent extension of tax cuts. So, you know, as I alluded to earlier, I think a lot of the permanent parts, the, the temporary parts of the TCGA, Mm -hmm. um, these are parts that were there to get it across the finish line. These were these were not parts that were really oriented towards economic growth. Um, they were parts that uh, it convinced that 51st senator or the 50th senator to vote for it. Um, and so, I, I think there's it, it, we would be foolish to just say let's permanently pass the whole thing. We would we should take a much more 
a deliberate approach in deciding what parts are necessary for growth and what parts are really just a political giveaway. And that's easy for right. me to say, right? Because I work right. at a think tank. I'm not on the Hill trying to convince people to pass this permanently. Right. No, I, I gave um, you that alternate universe where it's Democrats running yeah, the show, yeah. calling shots so the tax cuts go away. But what about the other yeah. universe where Trump is reelected and Republicans get both chambers of Congress? Would we, it, You again, you know the Hill better than I do right now, is your sense that they would automatically go for a permanent extension or, yes. there, or there be a nuanced uh, debate? Politically, it would be a full-on extension. Uh, and I think that's ill-advised when you look at the future federal federal budget. Yeah. So uh, we're doing yeah. the classic think tank here. We want a nuanced conversation. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And I think, you know, particularly, you know, when you when you speak to people on the Hill, they're frustrated with certain parts of the individual, on the individual side of the, the tax right. bill, that it's been very hard to uh, actually build out Section 199A, which is the provision that gives a 20% deduction to small business owners. Um, uh, it's been very hard to write that, write the rules around that policy in ways that don't lead to tax avoidance strategies that weren't intended by the original architects. So um, I, you know, I think when you go section by section, uh, TCJ was w the best we could get perhaps in 2017, but it's, it's not what we need going forward necessarily if we wanted a, a tax plan that is oriented towards growth and can raise revenue needed to fund the programs that Americans you know, love. Okay. So you have sat down and you've tried to balance the budget, yes? Uh, many times, yes. I had to many practice times. It. Many times, yes. You've done it many ways. Uh, yes. Okay. Take me through some of the scenarios. So first of yep. all, take me through, take me through just kind of the craziest way that you did it. Uh, the, the craziest way. Well, I mean, you could certainly try to do this by taxing high-income individuals more. Um, and very quickly, you discover that you can do it. Uh, but if you just have a, a, a rudimentary model that sort of uh, so, so, accounts so I'm guessing, for... I'm guessing there are three avenues here, Danny. I'm guessing yeah. avenue number one is, okay, I'm going to kind of, you know, I'm going to have to do... Taxes are going to kind of lead the way. There's going to yep. be budget cuts, but there's going to be a painful tax cut. The second tax avenue would be, yeah, budget cuts are going to lead the way with a little taxes. And then the third would be what? No taxes, all budget, or all taxes, no budget? Actually, it might be four avenues. So, well, the, the preferred way is probably some combination uh, right. led by entitlement reform. I think that's where you, certainly, as I've said, that's where two-thirds of the future spending is going. And so if you don't right. reform Social Security and Medicare, it doesn't matter what you do elsewhere. You know, you can try to do this through raising taxes on the wealthy, but very quickly right. you discover there's not enough money there. And the money that is there, if you tax it at really high rates, you end up with economic distortions that mean a smaller economy going forward. Mm -hmm. Um, so when you when you dig in there, the 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 optimal plan is lead with entitlement reform, uh, fix the way we tax, fix the way we regulate in ways that perhaps can grow the economy a bit more. And that's one thing with uh, our America Off Balance project that we included a, a a module that lets you actually see the impact of growing the economy a little bit faster. And you know I worked for uh, for Jeb, who before I got on the campaign he was four percent economic growth. Jeb, um, and <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I don't think that's uh, sustainable, at least. Um, but if we grow the economy slightly faster, say 10, 20 basis points faster than this new normal of 1.9%, that leads to a, a massive reduction in future debt levels. Not enough to solve the problem by any stretch of the imagination, but enough where it warrants looking for ways that can achieve higher growth in the long term. And so that's ideas like a tax policy that really delivers growth, um, a, a regulatory state that is focused on not burdening businesses, um, uh, you know, go through the list of policies, a, a trade policy that isn't intended to wreak havoc on the economy, uh, uh, immigration policy designed for work. Um, you know, there's a whole litany of policies out there that all of you know, Hoover fellows speak to often. Uh, that can certainly bump up that growth rate a little bit. You know, it might not be three percent, but you know, a, uh, the 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 tax calculator that we or the calculator that we've uh, built into the the uh, uh, America Off Balance predicts that you know if you have a half percentage point increase in growth, which is a lot. I mean, you're right. talking about a, a you know twenty percent increase in in projected growth rates. Um, you know that that gets you that gets that below one hundred percent of GDP. Um, so just 10 basis points, 20 basis points increase in growth rates, huge impact on the economy. So I think that's something where we don't want to forget that part of, of the recipe for solving this problem. Right. Now, so take us through how you solve the problem. Yeah. So uh, first, entitlement reform. Uh, with Social Security, you need to price index it. As I said... Um, now, this is... This is Let's caveat this. This is the academic approach. This is the academic approach, but this is also probably one of the few feasible approaches to this. Right. Outside right. of... But to be clear, this yeah. is... This is I did not get elected to do this job. I don't have to run for you. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. There's the reason why I'm at a think tank and not, you know, yes. uh, 1600 Pennsylvania or somewhere. Okay. Um, but the uh, it, you begin with entitlement reform because, again, that's where the spending's at. And so Social Security counting for 25% of future spending um, and not or 
somewhere around 25% of non-interest spending going forward. Reforming that program, we don't have to cut the benefits, as I said. You just grow it slower than it's projected to grow now. That's all you have to do, and you achieve you know, a 10 15% reduction in long-term debt levels by 2049. Medicare, a little bit trickier. You need to look to premium support models, other things like that. But as I mentioned earlier, the growth in Medicare is really driven by per-enrollee spending. And so if we just were able to find ways to slow that spending, say we were able to get per-enrollee spending to only grow just a little bit faster than overall GDP growth. Um, and th- it would be a tough tough policy to, to find and to enact, but uh, that alone would, those two policies would keep debt close to 100% of GDP. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we add in economic growth, we can add in some small changes to tax policy. You know, you can realistically see debt not getting much above 90% without too many other changes. Right. Um, and that means not having to cut low-income programs. That means not having to slash defense uh, just through making those small minor changes, or the, 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 I shouldn't say minor, but for making these changes to, you know, where the money's going. And so if we're, if we're going to solve this problem, that's where you got to look first and yeah, foremost. What did you do on taxes? So uh, taxes, you know, you can, you can consider a few different options. Um, there, there's no terribly good options that would be politically popular, but certainly things like considering not extending the tax, uh, the, the tax, per, the tax bills, particularly some of the, indiv- the individual provisions, mm-hmm. uh, you know, corporate tax, that's a permanent provision. That's not something that it would be wise to get rid of. That's something where, uh, you know, certainly leads to growth, but items on the, the, uh, whether it be changing the way the, the base of the tax code, getting rid of some individual deductions, uh, getting rid of itemizing generally. If uh, the, one of the products that we mentioned, uh, or that America Off Balance has, is our budget matters site, which we have a list of different budget options that I sort of walk through. Uh, and the tax ones are always, you know, let's. What if we repeal SALT? What if we repeal and this the state and local income tax deduction? Right. Uh, get rid of, and this would be the time to do it. Uh, right now, if you take SALT for instance. Um, state and local tax deduction under the TCGA has been capped at $10,000. Right. Very few people are benefiting much from it at the moment. Come 2026, if the tax bill isn't extended, that's that, that's where you look. Uh, you know, you, you have this massive increase in, in the state and local tax deduction at that point. So if we were to just full, wholesale re- replace it now or repeal it now and just say nobody gets the tax deduction anymore, long term, that's that's actually large savings, particularly after 2026 when the, the tax the uh, temporary provisions expire. And so it's things like that. It's things where if we want to make the tax code pro-growth, base narrowing pro- uh, the things like that, the itemized deductions, mortgage interest deduction, right. um, state and local, these are places where you can look, have no impact on long-term economic growth, uh, and create more revenue, and also you reduce some distortions that we've created through the tax code by encouraging states to have really poor fiscal policies. Right. Um, so that's that's the one tax area where I think you know you can get most conservative economists and even you know uh, economists across the board in favor of right broad based low rates uh, and broadening the base through getting rid of the state and local tax deduction makes a whole lot of sense. Right. This is usually the point in the conversation where somebody says flat tax. Uh, so you need Alvin Rubushka on the show yes. to talk about that. Uh, you know, you, I mean, talk about my my ideas are politically unrealistic. You know, the uh, the flat tax. Uh, but no, there there are ways where. You know, you can achieve a, a system that uh, has a broader base and lower rates and is still equitable. Um, and, and I think, you know, we, we'd be, it's just because these ideas are politically challenging doesn't mean we should be just throwing them out wholesale. And there are other tax uh, ideas like a value-added tax or, or items like that that you can make a justification for on efficiency grounds. And particularly if you're replacing inefficient parts of the tax code with efficient consumption taxes. Um, these are uh, ideas that certainly, in 2016, there were a number of presidential candidates pushing for variations of that. Uh, uh, Governor Bush, actually, we pushed for what, what they would call a, uh, it wasn't exactly a consumption tax, but it would have been a, effectively a cash flow tax, which would achieve sort of the same purpose. Um, you had, uh, let's see here, you had Rand Paul pushing for what was essentially a flat tax. You had Ted Cruz pushing for something similar. So. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's support for it in some circles, and you can certainly make an argument that it is far more economically efficient to do so, but uh, I think in the meantime, you kind of have to work within the existing code, which is what we discovered in 2017, which means looking at base broadening activities like getting rid of salt. Let's assume that there's still an Area 45 podcast in 2019, but it's a different 45 in the White House, and it's Jeb and not Donald Trump. Would Jeb Bush have done a tax cut like Donald Trump? 
there would have been certainly components, components. that uh, that would look very similar. Um, I, I think there's been when you look at what actually got passed, uh, you could pull parts out of Rubio's plan that was predicted and that was proposed in 2016. You could pull parts out of Jeb's plan. Um, you know, we proposed a massive increase in the standard deduction. We proposed, uh, you know, a uh, corporate tax cut of I think down to 20% is what we were proposing. Um, and you know, you go to Rubio's plan. Rubio is proposing things that are equivalent to what the Section 199A was. Right. So, um, yeah, I think no matter which candidate would have gotten in there, you would have gotten a pretty similar tax plan to what we saw right. under. Um, and uh, in under that Trump. universe, Danny Heil, you may be sitting over in that very beautiful old federal building, the OMB. Uh, crunching numbers for the Bush, for the Bush presidency. Would the budget look much different, though, than it does today? I would hope so, but politically, I, I think, you know, it's a, it's a challenge, no matter who would have been in there. Well, again, to, again, not to play could have, would have, should have, but what do you think a Jeb, president, uh, Jeb Bush presidency <laughs> could have done differently? He would have walked in with a Republican Congress. So in theory, he said, okay, I'm here. Paul Ryan, let's talk about what to do on the budget. But again, what options yeah. do they really have in this political environment? So... You know, it's easy to assess Donald Trump as, a, as part of the problem here because he does not have any interest in entitlements. And it's easy to blame Congress because Congress, when in doubt, let's blame Congress. But the budget just seems one of those situations where just we've been dealt a bad hand given given the game we play yeah. in Washington. And, and certainly it would have been a, a political, uh, it would have been politically challenging. Yes. But but Jeb was coming out there with Social Security, Medicare reforms, yeah. not as you know far as probably would need to be. You know, part, you know, when you're, to, to all the Democratic candidates, uh, to their credit, you know, th these are supposed to be aspirational. These, yes. these plans are not supposed to be something that you're going to walk down the hill and say, pass right. this. Um, and in the same way, the, the plans that we were pushing out, uh, certainly there were, um, not as far as we needed to go, but in the case of Medicare and Social Security, there were certainly efforts uh, to, to deal realistically with these programs. So with Medicare, there was a premium support model proposed, um, if I recall correctly, it was you know, almost four years ago we were proposing yes. these policies. Um, but, you know, I think you could, you could certainly make the case that we were the 2016 version of Elizabeth Warren when it came to just releasing policy after policy after policy. Right. We wanted to be substantive, and we were. Um, and I think when you look at the reg reform, tax policy, the things that conservatives are very happy about with the Trump administration, you would have got that under, you know, a President Bush, a Jeb or a Rubio or pretty much any of the other candidates. Uh, universally, these are the things. Now, when it comes to trade policy, when it comes to immigration, you would see a very different perspective that I think we'd be better off for. Right. So there's an old saying in politics that when a politician is talking about something that nobody really is interested in, they're offering a solution in search of a crisis. <laughs> uh, but it seems to me the challenge with the budget, Danny, is you're going to need a crisis to really yeah. get a solution here. So without being too doom and gloom here, what are the coming crises when it comes to the budget and how it affects America? Yeah, so I, I wouldn't say necessarily crisis. I would say uh, challenging moments. Uh, you, you, you have when the trust funds go insolvent, the Social Security trust fund particularly, um, at that moment, under current law, the Social Security Administration is required just to cut benefits immediately. So right. They can only pay out what they get in from a payroll tax revenue. And so at that point, Congress is going to have to do something. Um, and if, you, if, if Republicans have to be in power in, at the time, that means you can enact some pretty significant Social Security reforms. If Democrats are in power, what we've seen with their recent Social Security 2100 Act, they're just going to pass along a payroll tax to the uh, payroll years, tax increase. How many years down the road is this? Uh, so 2033 is current projections, but it could be sooner than that. If you have a recession that lowers payroll tax revenue and if Congress you know, extends benefit, increases benefits or does anything else, um, uh, and then on Medicare side, you have the HI payroll, uh, the HI trust fund is dwindling now, um, and I forget the exact year for that. But uh, certainly, these are moments where Congress, uh, you know, as we said earlier, they're not untouchable. These are programs that you can reform at any time. But those are moments certainly when you're more likely to reform. And what right. we saw, if you uh, dig into John Cogan's High Cost of Good Intentions, he walks through the history of uh, programs that had trust funds with them, and right. inevitably. We reform these programs when the trust funds go close to zero. So, you know, we, we have long made the argument, and it's the correct argument, that these trust funds don't really exist, that they're just an accounting scheme, uh, but they exist in the minds of the public. Um, and, and that's why they are there. That's why FDR made sure to include trust funds with Social Security, was that this was a way to, to give people a semblance that, no, this is a separate program that you're paying into. Um, and so now that, that kind of works to our political advantage a little bit because now the trust funds are dwindling. Now it's time where we can say every dollar that's ever been paid into Social Security, it's going out to recipients. Right. And come 2033, we have to do something um, if we're going to we solve the problem. We have talked a lot about deficits, but we haven't talked about debt. And there's a difference here and an important distinction. Uh, we're talking about trying to balance a federal budget, at least bringing the federal 
red ink under control. Meanwhile, the United States is horribly, how much is the national debt right now? So national debt's about $16 trillion in, pub, in debt held by the public. It's a ridiculous spinning clock that you yeah. can see. Yes. Yeah, well, the, you know, you'll hear two numbers. You'll hear $22 trillion, which is what they call gross debt. And then you'll hear $16 trillion, which is the, the debt number that probably matters for economic purposes. What's the difference between the two? So gross debt includes the trust funds, intergovernmental transfers. Um, it, it's, it's sort of a... Uh, uh, it's, it's obviously a fairly technical uh, argument, but when, when you we have $16 trillion in outstanding securities that are owned by the Fed, owned by private sector in the U.S., or owned by foreign actors. Then we have an extra $6 trillion that is owed by one part of government to another part. So Social Security Trust Fund, that's the big part, somewhere around $2, 3000000000000 trillion where uh, the U.S. Treasury owes a claim to the Social Security Administration. But Congress at any day could go and say, well, no, we no longer owe that claim. They can't do that with a $16 trillion chunk. So when we focus on the debt, if you jump onto the America Off Balance, you'll see we only talk about that $16 trillion number. Um, and, and politically, probably better to talk about the $22 trillion, but for, uh, for economic purposes and just for ha- the political realities of what we actually owe, that $16 trillion is a better number to focus on. How do you eliminate $16 trillion in debt? You, you don't. You just got to find a, a way not to grow it as fast. Okay. Um, so, you know, I think the uh, reducing it would actually require surpluses. That's, right. that's the reality. So unless you have a plan to balance the budget and, and actually have surpluses from here forward, you're not, dec- you're not shrinking the debt. And now you can shrink it relative to the economy. Uh, and that's really should be our goal is going forward, adding, making sure that deficits are not large enough where we actually are adding to it, growing it as a share of the economy. Right now, it's at 75% of GDP, growing to 80% in the next couple of years. And then, as I said, it's going to approach 100% in 2033. So if we're just able to make sure the economy grows faster than the debt, we've really solved the problem, or we've, we've made it much more manageable for future generations. Okay, so again, the challenge, the communications challenge, explaining to the average American why this matters to them, yeah. $16 trillion of debt. Yeah, mo- motivating it, uh, you know, and it's, it's not just 16, it's what the future debt burden will be. And that's why with America Off Balance, we're really forward-looking. We're telling right. you what the debt will be in 2030, 2040, right. 2050. But again, the challenge, um, Danny, I can yep. say, okay, you know, $50,000 per American, but I don't have to pay that $50,000. Yeah, absolutely. And so then we kind of turn to talking about what, what that would mean for stability. Um, I think that's the word where we're kind of focused on going forward is a massive debt. You might not have to pay that back, but that has huge ramifications for the economy. Uh, it depends which economist you act, but uh, you ask. But if you uh, look at Congressional Budget Office numbers, their, pres- their assumption is that for every dollar increase in deficits, you lose about 33 cents of private investment, right. which has huge impacts for the future economy. It means fewer machines, fewer buildings, lower wages going forward, and ultimately fewer economic opportunities for American public. Um, so you focus on that. You focus on the fact that uh, when you have so much of the federal budget that's paying to- that's going towards interest payments, that reduces the the flexibility of future policymakers. It means in the next recession, you know, in 2009, we were able to double the national debt in just a couple of years, the federal debt in just two years um, or two, three years uh, to fund huge increase in government spending and tax cuts uh, to make sure we prop people up during the recession. Will future policymakers have that kind of flexibility if debt's at 100 or 120 percent of debt of GDP? You know, you're reaching points where there's certainly you're you're reducing flexibility. And I, I think you know when we're um, it, when we're talking about stability, I think one thing to keep in mind is there's there's certainly this new talk, whether it's you know modern monetary theory of this you know debt doesn't matter, um, or, or even just you know general sense of we can manage the debt. A lot of that presumes that we are. A lot of that assumes that that policymakers are inherently rational, that fiscal and monetary leaders will make competent, perfect decisions. And I think what we've learned over the last few years is that our our institutions are a lot more fragile than we once thought. Uh, And that should make us much more leery about increasing debt loads going forward, because if you do have an issue where a a future president decides that he's not going to raise the debt ceiling and defaults on a portion of their debt, then you're talking about massive increases in in, the risk premium that creditors would demand before they lend more money to the federal government. So I think throughout all of this, it's a talk about uh, promoting economic prosperity and security for future, for future generations. We're jeopardizing that every time we add a dollar to the debt. Danny Heil, it's a great conversation. I wish you the best in the World Series. Thank you. Thank you. Um, That's uh, presuming two more rounds. So please we... show your child baseball. Don't explain <laughs> the federal budget. They will have nightmares. <laughs>
No, really, it's a great conversation. And uh, America Off Balance is just a tremendous website. I cannot recommend it enough for people who care about these issues. Thank you, Bill. Yeah, we, we've put a lot of labor into it, and uh, you know, certainly something where we have a lot of components. I, we barely talked about the budget calculator. And, uh, and who else at Hoover, by um, the way, was responsible for this besides you? So uh, the, the, uh, the Hoover's marketing team was actually huge in sort of picking out mm -hmm. the, uh, the developer who actually made this, turn this from a very messy Excel spreadsheet into yeah. something that was uh, you know, quite good looking. Um, but beyond that, John Kogan had a hand in a lot of this, uh, and then John Razian, uh, Hoover's former director and now senior fellow at Hoover, uh, they played a big role in sort of putting together the numbers and working through some of the arguments. Um, but uh, certainly uh, the, the budget calculator is the part where, where uh, we spend most of our time at these days, and what that is, that actually lets you make the numbers and, and lets you pick out different policies and see the impact of those. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, but it's been a labor of love, certainly. Yeah. Maybe, maybe for the next day of the union, we lock them all in that chamber and we put you in there and just have you just, go through this. Well, and, and the great thing is, is our, our budget calculator is flexible enough where they can each sit there with their own laptop. They can make their own decisions. And once they find the perfect solution, they can raise their hand and say they, they've done it. You can't come out of this room until you've solved the problem. Exactly. There you go. I love it. Danny, thanks for the conversation. Thanks so much, Bill. You've been joining Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. This podcast, the budgetary avenues that Washington continues to avoid. If you've been enjoying Era 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. I also recommend that you sign up for Hoover's monthly Pod Blast, which gives you the best of Area 45, Econ Talk, The Classicist, Strategica, The Pacific Century, Education Exchange. We have a lot of podcasts, in case you haven't noticed. Plus, fellows' remarks from Hoover events, and hopefully Danny Heil is in that mix. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows, including Danny Heil, to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Are you on Twitter, Danny? I am not, no. You're I've, a serious I'm, man, I'm one of the few you? millennials who refuse to be on it. You can find online, however, America Off Balance, and its website is www.americaoffbalance.org. Go check it out, please. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.